You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Great Jews series. We're going to be talking about Zev Jabotinsky, Jewish pride and strength. Jabotinsky was the ideological father of the Israeli right, which was the precursor to the Likud party, which has been the uh, dominating party in Israel for on and off, but mostly for the last 50 years. And the most up-to-date biography of Jabotinsky, which we'll be using a lot tonight, is by Hillel Halkin, uh, Jabotinsky, A Life. And uh, I recommend it highly. There's also The Lone Wolf by Shmuel Katz, who's a close uh, associate of his. And um, this Herzl-like figure has many parallels to the founder of Zionism. Uh, like Herzl, Jabotinsky spent his life traveling the world to build the Zionist movement. He was an author, had a difficult family life, and ran himself down until he died, like Herzl as well. And he was mobilized by the Kishnev pogroms, very in a way similar to that which Herzl was during the Balfour, uh, the uh, during the trial of um, uh, in France that he uh, that he attended, and he decided, uh, like Herzl, that Jews had to leave Europe en masse, and um, and we'll see that uh, he will play a, a very significant leadership role in the Zionist movement, uh, like. Jabotinsky did, like Herzl did. Now, in his youth, uh, Jabotinsky was from Odessa. And uh, Odessa was a very unique city. In a sense, it was kind of a cross between New York and uh, Las Vegas. It was a totally new city. Jews were generally not allowed to live in cities in Russia. But the Tsar had allowed them to live in this new city that they were trying to build up on the Black Sea. And because of that, it was a very cosmopolitan city. It had a very large Jewish population, but not a very traditional one. And so the Jews were integrated into uh, the general society. In addition, Jews were up to a third of uh, the population of Odessa. And because of this, Jabotinsky was not viewed as Jewish by uh, the other early Zionists like uh, Ben-Gurion, who came from the shtetl and were imbued from a young age with, uh, with Jewish, uh, the Eastern European Jewish culture. Now, uh, Jabotinsky's mother was an observant Jew, um, but also a very worldly one. He was orphaned at the age of six and had to fend for himself, which might have uh, had a big impact upon his drive later in life. And there's a famous incident where there, some of the Jewish boys were playing and a non-Jewish policeman started harassing them, told them to get out of the street, uh, threatened them, and Jabotinsky threw himself on the policeman for insulting uh, the Jews. And um, this vignette will very much show Jabotinsky's independence and is not caring what the rest of the world uh, would think about uh, Jewish strength. 
uh, he received a very good education, which his mother had to work hard to pay for, and was a very gifted student, very bright student. At the age of 18, a few months before graduating high school, he was offered a job in a newspaper to be the foreign correspondent of a Russian newspaper in Paris, and he took the job. And so he moved to Western Europe, and for the next three years in Paris, and then mostly Rome, he would be a writer, a journalist, uh, a novelist, playwright, and live the bohemian student life in Paris and Italy. And so he was very much a modernized Jew, a citizen of the world. Yet he also says that growing up, he always knew that the Jews were a people, that one day we would have a king and return to our land, which is, of course, the messianic idea in Judaism. So it was kind of a given for him, yet at the same time, his Judaism did not play a prominent role until the faithful moment. And like Herzl at the Dreyfus trial, um, he was sent to cover the Kishinev pogroms. Terrible pogroms were breaking out in the end of the 1800s, early 1900s in Russia. And one of the most vicious was in the town of Kishinev near Odessa, relatively modernized town, not a rural backwoods area. And it had been one of the worst pogroms in hundreds of years, and it shocked the world and shocked the Jewish people. Nachum uh, Bialik, the famous poet, wrote a poem in the city of slaughter describing the Jewish pacifism and how Jews allowed themselves to be slaughtered and killed. And Jabotinsky would translate this poem into Russian from the Yiddish, and this brought him his fame. Now, we have to understand the history of what we will call quietism, which was that Jews had always been a minority, disempowered politically, and in a sense also physically. Jews could not be farmers or craftsmen, so they were um, merchants and not professions where they would be physically uh, strong. And on the top of that, the Torah's approach, the rabbi's approach was always in Galut, in exile, the Jews should have the stance of Jacob towards Esau, of being deferential, of not uh, standing up because we were, there was nowhere to go and because we were disempowered and we were not strong. And in fact, the only way to go was to run away, but uh, that was often just to the next anti-Semitic setting and incident. So this had been the, the Jewish posi position. This had been the Jewish behavior. And no one could really conceive of something beyond that until then. And uh, after being involved, getting involved in some of the uh, efforts with the victims and rescue efforts, um, follow-up efforts at uh, obtaining food and treatment for the victims, Jabotinsky decided that Jews had to learn to defend themselves. And in Odessa, he heard about a group called Jerusalem, which was a... Uh, uh, Russian version of the Jew JDL, Jewish Defense League, uh, young Jews, Jewish youth who 
uh, really only had more than clubs and sticks, but uh, learned to fight and uh, form self-defense groups. He was immediately welcomed into the group and invited to join. And uh, because of that association and his translation of Bialik's poem, he was immediately invited a number of months later to uh, the Jewish Congress, the Sixth Zionist Conf Conf Conference. And there he stood up, he got a time on the podium and started to advocate for Jewish self-defense. The Zionist leadership, who uh, had the tr more traditional, quietest view, were appalled and wanted him pulled from the podium. There was a ruckus. Hurt, according to Jabotinsky's uh, recounting, Herzl heard the ruckus, said, what's going on? Was told, we need to get him off the podium. And he stood up and uh, said, we have now finished this conference. And Jack Batinsky would say almost jokingly, this was my sole meeting with Theodore Herzl, who became his hero. Um, the veracity of that story is questioned. And like many authors, sometimes they embellish um, but clearly, Jabotinsky wanted to feel that there was that connection to Herzl. Now, um, he, uh, from that point on, he really uh, moved to dedicate his life to the Zionist cause and the Jewish people, and in a sense, didn't look back. He left his well-paying job, moved to St. Petersburg, to join a new Zionist paper and, uh, and begin his work on behalf of that. In 1907, he married Anya Halperin, uh, and we have their correspondence and showed the great love between them, but also the heartbreak that for many months out of the year, for many years, Jabotinsky was on the road, and he was separated from his wife, and she'd also, in a sense, be running to catch up to him. She was bought in to his cause. She went to an agricultural school to train herself for their future life in Palestine. And for the next 10 years, he would be on speaking tours. He was a gifted orator, a charismatic speaker. Not that he was uh, bouncing off the walls and so animated, but they say he just powerful. And in terms of being a power of the word of his journalism also, extremely gifted writer. And we have to understand that at that time, oratory, the speeches would go on for three hours, right? There was no um, television. Radio, I guess, had just had its inception and wasn't very widespread. And so people would get together and just listen to ideas and talk. And people would read the newspapers. The newspapers were the internet of that period. So being a journalist uh, was very prominent and very influential. So in the next 10 years, he would develop his ideas of Zionism built around a sense of Jewish nationalism. And we've talked before about the rise of nationalism in late 1900s in Europe. He viewed nationalism as something inherent to a people, almost an inherent innate characteristic. And he did not uh, see this coming from Jewish religion, uh, which later on in life he 
started to develop more of an appreciation for. But really, it would, in his view, it would be Hebrew and the land of Israel, which would bind all Jews together. And like Herzl, he envisioned a Europeanized, enlightened Jewish state on the Mediterranean. And with culture, world culture, but strong Jewish identity. So in a sense, like Herzl, his view of the Jewish state was as a refuge for European anti-Semitism. It was uh, the answer to this great dilemma. However, there was another value which uh, Jabotinsky brought into his teachings, and this is what he called Hadar. It's a difficult word to translate. You could call it majesty. You could call it um, pride. And it was that the Jew should have a self-esteem and a pride coupled with moral integrity, with a sense of self. He was always immaculately dressed, said that a Jew should, when they eat, when they walk, should do so with dignity, when they interact with people, with graciousness. Um, and you can see the ideas behind the Torah idea of greeting every person with a smile, of... Um, being honorable towards other people and giving them honor. Uh, but for him, it was a uh, secular idea of a uh, sense of self uh, that came out of an inner uh, self-affirmation. And this was something very new for the Jew as well, who was always on the defensive, always the second-class citizen, always the brunt of attacks or of prejudice. And so... Um, so politically, and this is also, uh, we'll see his development as a political th th thinker, is that Jabotinsky will veer away from the most popular movement, which was labor Zionism, which was a Zionism mixed in with socialism. And that view was that the Jewish people would build a socialist paradise in the Middle East, in Palestine, in the future Israel. And it would be based upon uh, Marxist socialist views of how to structure society. Jabotinsky, on the other hand, would be what we might call a Hobbesian Democrat. He recognized that people are motivated by self-interest uh, in the Hobbesian sense, but human nature, since it could not be changed, but people's self-interest could. And this is where an interesting transformation happened, where Jabotinsky, at the same time as being the artist, being the individualist, being the person who would always be the lone wolf uh, and eventually form his own Zionist party, yet at the same time he advocated for the individual to nullify themselves to the greater cause of the Jewish people, to be part of a whole and to be willing to do whatever they had to do for that greater good. And he would actualize those words as well. In a sense, one could view that even though he did continue writing novels and plays and they got some recognition, in a sense, you could say he gave, gave up a great career as a writer to, uh, for the Jewish people. Some people viewed this collective subjugation as slipping into fascism 
And that coupled with his oratory style in a time when the Mussolini's and the great orators were rousing up the, the populace, um, his followers wore brown shirts before Hitler's followers did. But in this, uh, many of the other Jewish leaders, and particularly Ben-Gurion, would be skeptical and see the root of a fascist uh, tendencies in Jabotinsky. Now, when World War I broke out, since one of his main outlooks was that the Jewish people needed to take our destiny in our own hands, and especially if that meant to defend ourselves, he envisioned a Jewish fighting force that would help the British and then aid them in maintaining control over Palestine. His view was that the Jewish community would have to hit 30% of the local population, and then there would be a showdown with the Arabs. And when that happened, the Jews needed a fighting force. So he went to England to advocate. Uh, Chaim Weizmann actually helped him introduce him to people, even though their views later would be very different. Uh, but he would be the first, this would be the first Jewish fighting force since the Bar Kokhba rebellion against the Romans in the year 132. And, um, and this was a radical idea. The other Zionist leaders were not at all in favor of this. And in addition, they believed that uh, the Jewish, Jews in Palestine should remain neutral. In fact, Ben-Gurion even served uh, in the Tur Ottoman army for a short while. And they believed because the Turks were allies with the Germans that um, they should not take sides because Palestine was under Turkish rule and you couldn't ruffle the feathers. Kind of like today saying that Jews need to be nonpartisan in the United States because either one could be in power and you need to work with both as a Zionist. Uh, years later, Jabotinsky, in a sense, would be vindicated for throwing his hat in with the British because... Uh, they won the war, and they issued the Balfour Declaration, uh, stating that their uh, uh, mandate over Palestine, their taking over Palestine from the Turks, was an interim to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And uh, he pushed his... We're back now to the beginning of the war. He pushed his idea of a Jewish fighting force and all the British gave him was uh, to form a, Jew a Zion Mule Corps. And this would be a uh, division to support the troops, to bring provisions. Uh, mules were a vital link in the supply chain. And Jabotinsky had found a partner uh, in Joseph Trublador. Treblador had been a Jew who was taken by a canton, who was drafted by the Russians, which meant a 15 to 20 year service in the Russian army, which was partially meant to de-Judaize this population and to pull the Judaism out of them. Treblador was a strong person physically and of character. He stayed true to his Judaism. Afterwards, he moved to a remote area so he could re-engage in Jewish life. And he embraced the idea of the Zion Mule Corps and uh, became their commander. 
and they performed valiantly on the Turkish front uh, in the line of danger. There were approximately 600 of them. And uh, afterwards, when they were, they were sent to Palestine, and at this point, the British uh, then allowed uh, the formation of a Jewish brigade that would fight with the fusiliers in the British army. And Jabotinsky, who wasn't a British citizen, signed up for this corps, and he went into training. And uh, they were uh, mobilized to Palestine after the British invasion. So he missed the real action, but he was stationed along the British front, which was right across uh, northern Jerusalem, in the Shomron in Samaria. He and his, the Jewish division, uh, which numbered in the thousands, was placed along the Jordan Valley side of the front, which ran east-west. So the British advance actually was made along the coast. So he did not see direct combat action, but they did uh, have scuffles with the British. They did hold the line. And when they had to, after the British uh, pushed through, they had to take the next mountain. By then, the Turks had fled. And so the most he saw was some shooting back and forth. But in a sense, he did show that he who had advocated for Jewish self-defense was ready to put himself on the front lines. And uh, one incident that's described that really drove home the reality was that on the march back, they were requisitioned to bring soldiers back. One of the soldiers was badly injured could not walk. Uh, if they'd left him, he would have been eaten by the jackals. And so uh, Jabotinsky, as the officer, had to, to end his life, had to kill this prisoner. And even though he felt it was justified in doing, uh, it, 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 it weighed heavily on him. He it drove home the reality of taking a life. And yet that would not deter Jabotinsky, his advocacy of Jewish self-defense, the, 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 the Zionist, the nucleus of the Zion Mule Corps and of the Fusiliers would become the nucleus of the Haganah, the Jewish self-defense force. And in 1920, the Arabs started to riot and turn against the Jews. Joseph Tromblador was killed in Tel Chai in northern Israel, and Jabotinsky's youth movement would be named after him, Beitar, Brit Trublador, and after the city of Beitar, which was the last city to fall under the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So uh, Jabotinsky was wary of being too wed to the British. He saw that the British would not defend the Jews against the Arabs. They played this neutral position. And they also began to limit immigration disbanding Jewish fighting forces. And so he started to veer away from the mainstream labor Zionists who were totally on board with working with the British. Another issue, which was where Jabotinsky diverted, was different, was in the issue of immigration. The British had issued a, what, the first of their infamous white papers to limit immig Jewish immigration. And the Zionist leadership agreed with it. Why? Because their view, their ideal of creating a Zionist workers' country uh, in the Middle East 
meant that really they were looking for able-bodied workers who could work in agriculturally, even in the urban areas they envisioned, urban kibbutzim. And so they didn't want to just open the gates. Uh, they wanted skilled, physical, manual laborers who would build the country. In contrast, Jabotinsky uh, understood that the population needed to build, be built up, and his philosophy was also that Jews had always been merchants and businessmen, and we'd be, we were good at it. So why squeeze that out of the Jewish people? He didn't have this chip on his shoulder of the shtetl Jew who looked down on the peddler and the Jew who could not work the land. And so for him, you didn't need to have a um, kind of lionization of the Jewish worker. He was skeptical of socialism as well after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And so he believed that, that the Jewish majority had to build up in preparation for fighting against the Arabs. Ironically, uh, he had moved his family to Palestine shortly after World War I. He had got trouble finding a job. Eventually he found a job in, with Haaretz, the newspaper, uh, which exists to this day. But even with that, he had trouble supporting his family. And so when he was offered a job in London, he jumped on it, uh, working for the Jewish National Fund. And so his time in Palestine would be short-lived. He would have one other stint trying to live there, which we'll talk about in a little while, but uh, ironically, never settled there. Uh, after a year, he resigned from the Jewish National Fund because his views diverted too much from the mainstream leadership, and he would begin uh, to set himself up as, in a sense, the political opposition in the World Zionist Congress, eventually breaking away to form what would become called as revisionist Zionism, which was revising the classic philosophy and positions of the labor Zionists in terms of socialism, in terms of immigration, in terms of standing up to the British if need be and in terms of being strong against the Arabs as well. One of his plays that he wrote was about Samson, which is very telling, because Samson is the image of the powerful Jew uh, fighting against the enemy. Also the image of the Jew fighting alone. Samson uh, was really a loner and went off on his own, uh, very much like Jabotinsky. On a trip to Latvia in the early 20s, he met a group of Jewish students who were part of Hasmonean, which was a dueling group. Uh, yes, classic duels with swords. Um, it was kind of a cross between uh, scouts and a fraternity. Uh, and uh, at this time, uh, labor Zionist groups formed these youth groups, which are still existent today in Israel. And even the non-Jewish world, there's a picture of my mother with a... Uh, group, outdoors, uh, hiking in Austria. And this was the Weltanschen, the, uh, the social norm at the time. But in it, these young Jews, he saw a willingness to help each other, a valuing of uh, self-defense and physical prowess, and the uh, 
seeds of the Hadar which he himself had advocated. And so they formed Betar, Brit Trubladur, uh, the uh, Jewish youth group, which would involve also, unlike the other labor Zionist groups, self-defense, uh, training, and almost paramilitary training and experience. Within 10 years, this movement would have 70,000 members and uh, grew to be an important presence in the Jewish world. He tried once more to move to Israel uh, in the late 20s, and the Western Wall had become an issue of contention. Uh, the British would not, because of Arab opposition, would not let the Jews set up a, uh, a proper prayer area, and the Arabs were trying to drive the Jews out of it completely. The Betar and some other youth staged a demonstration, standing up for our right to pray at the wall, and as a result were sparks the 1929 Arab riots, and there would be uh, dozens of Jews killed, especially in Hebron, in Sfat, many injured. And um, as a result, uh, the British would ban Jabotinsky from Palestine. He was in England on a tour, and they wouldn't let him come back. Eventually, um, his followers in Palestine would split off from the Haganah and form the Irgun, the fighting force which eventually would be responsible for freeing Palestine from British rule, from taking a direct role in the, in the late 40s of kicking the British out of Palestine. And back in Europe, the World, Zion organiza World Zionist Organization had become more accommodating of the British. And the revisionists, the Jabotinsky followers, had grown to 20% by 1931. But because of the uh, Congress's acceptance of British limitations on immigration, Jabotinsky threatened to leave. Uh, over the next few years, there were bitter uh, strife between the revisionist youth and the labor youth. The conflict in Europe demonstrated with uh, gangs going to break up the opposition's meetings, demonstrating at times winding up in direct violence of Jews fighting against Jews. In Palestine, the labor Zionists had formed a web of unions called the Hishtadrut, which was really more than labor union. It was an entire, the entire uh, the structure of society, permeating businesses, state-controlled businesses, workers' unions, um, who would get the immigration even was controlled by them. And like in Europe, the revisionists formed their own union. Uh, they would be viewed as scabs by the other union. Pressure were pulled on businesses not to employ them. And the revisionist offices were raided and vandalized by the labor uh, groups as well. Things came to a head and Jabotinsky decided it was time to do something. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he decided 
to reach out to David Ben-Gurion and to see how they could resolve things. So they met in Paris for three days. And after that three-day meeting, uh, which at first was a wary one, they came out with a great respect for each other. Not just respect, but almost a friendship and a warmth. And they brokered a compromise between the two, which unfortunately would never be accepted by the labor leadership. And Ben-Gurion would have to throw up his hands at the compromise. And it's at this point that Jabotinsky left the Zionist organization and formed his new Zionist organization. And um, he would no longer attend the Zionist Congress and set up almost a parallel um, direction. And particularly in Palestine, where the Haganah uh, were practicing what was called Hagvalah, self-restraint in the face of Arab attacks and accepting British rule, Jabotinsky directed the Irgun, his uh, fighting force, which was broken off from the Haganah, to strike back when they were hit. And so these would involve uh, Jewish self-defense. They would also involve price tag attacks. After Jews were attacked, they would attack uh, random members of the Arab community. And this, of course, was controversial. It was opposed by the rest of the labor movement, but Jabotinsky viewed it as the way for Jews to defend himself. And while a few years before he was advocating for Arabs to feel at home in Tel Aviv, it wasn't racially motivated. It, wasn't, it was simply a pragmatic reality that we would have to fight. And so, um, and so in Palestine as well, the Irgun was formed its own fighting force. We're now into the mid-30s and the cloud of Nazism starts to descend upon Europe. And Jabotinsky was very prescient on this. Uh, he would go around Europe warning people, telling them they should get out as soon as possible. And this is what he said, how he formulated it. He said, Jews are behaving as if their doom had already been sealed. It's as if they were all put on a wagon, 12 million educated, well-mannered people, this wagon is driving towards a cliff. And one of them cries, one of them is smoking a cigarette, one of them is singing, but not one person can be found to jump to his feet, grab the reins, and change the wagon's direction. And the British by now had issued another white paper uh, severely limiting Jewish immigration in 1939, just when Jews were scrambling to flee Nazi Germany. And Jabotinsky's plan at this point was quite radical. It was to mount an armed force that would storm Palestine and kick out the British through an armed uprising and revolt by the Palestinian Jews as well, which the Haganah would participate in. Needless to say, his idea was not very well accepted by the Zionist leadership, but before he could even start to implement it, uh, the war broke out, and the war caught up with him. And at this point, he realized there would be no fight against the British. 
he thought the British might capitulate to pressure uh, that Jews be led into Palestine, which as we know never happened. But he did also say that within five to seven years there would be a Jewish state in Palestine. He said, if tragically, if there were any Jews left. And the Irgun were frantically trying to get Jews out of Europe, putting them on barges, sending them down the Danube River to avoid British pressure on other states. But Jabotinsky's visions were grandiose. His next plan was that they would raise, like during World War I, a Jewish legion of 100,000 soldiers to fight against the Nazis and to fight defending Palestine. And he traveled to the United States to promote the project. As in the past, no mainstream uh, Zionist leaders would back him. And ironically, uh, the British would train a free Polish army uh, that then went back into Europe to fight against uh, the Germans. And amongst that Polish army would be a young lawyer named Menachem Begin. Um, Begin was part of the groups that the Polish, ironically, were allowing Jews, Beitarniks, to train militarily to fight against the Germans. And when uh, Poland was invaded, Menachem Begin, a disciple of Jabotinsky, was captured by the Russians, eventually released to be stationed in Palestine, to be released, rejoin the Free Polish Army, and be stationed in Palestine, and then decommissioned so he could fight and take over the leadership of the Irgun. The war stranded Jabotinsky in the United States for six months, and his wife could not join him and couldn't get a visa. Uh, he could not get back to London, partially because he had a non-citizen's visa, non-state status visa, and he was, his health was getting worse and worse. His wife was extremely worried about him, and he would pass away on August 3rd, 1940, at a Beitar camp in upstate New York, in Hunter, New York, at the age of 60 years old. And he would be buried in New York, New York City, only to be transferred to Mount Herzl some uh, 30 years later, when Ben-Gurion was no longer prime minister. And like his um, his hero, Herzl, he had run himself down and his health eventually to die on the road uh, trying to help the Jewish people. However, his legacy is a big one. After World War II, as we mentioned, his disciple, Menachem Begin, would lead the Irgun in an armed rebellion against the British, eventually kicking out the British, leading to the uh, declaration of a state of Palestine and the formation in Palestine of a Jewish state. And 39 years later, Menachem Begin, after being in the opposition for 39 years against labor, he and his Likud party would be elected prime minister, ending the domination of the labor Zionists. And for the next 50 years, the Likud would play 
as we said, a majority role in leading the Israeli government and in advocating a position of Jewish strength. Begin would stand up to the Americans, stand up to whoever he needed to stand up to, to affirm the right of Jews to have uh, a homeland, to infer and to uh, embody the Hadar, the majesty and the Jewish pride and the need for Jewish strength that Zeb Jabotinsky had lived to teach and to build for the Jewish people. Have a good evening.